0: This passage is the main part of Jude's letter. And as we read in just a moment, you're going to see perhaps why people tend to avoid Jude. It's known, as I said last week, the most neglected letter or book in the New Testament. And I think one of the reasons for that is because it's confusing. Today we're going to be introduced to some things we've maybe never thought about before, um, some difficult passages. But keep this in mind as we read and as we work through our sermon today in verses 4 to 16. A quote from Alistair Begg. He's a teacher over in America. He says this, The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Okay? So as we read through this today, and as questions start to come in your mind, as they will, because I've been working with this for about 20, 30 hours this week, many questions are still in my mind, but keep this in the front of your head, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And that's what I trust we can do today. We can take a take an overview. We can see the main things and the plain things today. So let's begin reading God's word in Jude 4, verse 4, until, verses, until verse 16. Jude writes... Yet, and this is the application to the false teachers, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, King James Version, brute beast, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of game to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs. At your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch they are loud mouth boosters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And we'll finish God's word there. Let me say a quick prayer and then we'll we'll begin to unpack this passage. Father, we, we come to a text like this today and we humble ourselves under your mighty word, Lord. We first of all affirm that your word is inspired, that men carried along by your Holy Spirit wrote these words down. And Father, that gives us confidence because they are here for our instruction. So Father, we do ask today that your spirit, the author of scripture, would help us to understand these things. We pray, Father, that we would keep in mind that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And we ask that by your spirit, you would give us all as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, ears to hear and minds to understand and comprehend what Jude's message is in verses 5 to 16 of his letter. And we pray all of this in the name of our Savior, our Master and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, judge not. Lest you be judged. Judge not that you be not judged. And to truly follow Jesus' teaching, many people today think that we shouldn't ever question the words or works of someone else. People think to do so would not only be judgmental, but it would also be unloving. So for example, in her Bible study group, a woman questions the teaching of someone she heard on the internet, and before this woman has even finished speaking, someone else pipes up and says, who are you to judge? Jesus told us, judge not lest you be judged. So the woman doesn't say anything else, and the group moves on. In Matthew chapter 7, however, Jesus teaches his disciples to take care of how they judge. Not that they shouldn't judge, but how, how, how to judge rightly. You see, as Christians, we are not to judge self-righteously as if we are better than everyone else, but rather we are still to judge. And that's made clear later on in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus tells his disciples, tells us that we will recognize false teachers by their fruits. In order to recognize false teachers by their fruits, We must pass judgment. We must examine them. In other words, we are to watch their lives closely and judge, not according to our standards, but according to God's revealed standard in his word. We are to judge whether they are from God, they are true teachers, or whether they're not from God, false teachers. And in his small letter, Jude calls his readers, as we thought about last week, to contend, to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a pressing command because false teachers had infiltrated their ranks, first 4. It's an ongoing command because there are many false teachers in every age, including ours. And it's a command that involves our minds. We must use our minds to examine every teaching in light of God's word. John says in 1 John chapter 1, Brothers, beloved, test every spirit. Why? Because there are many false teachers in our world. Later on in Acts, we're told about the Bereans. And these men examined the word of God to see and to check and to judge whether the things taught were according to the word of God. You see, to contend for the faith, we must first know what we are defending, as we thought about a little last week, and then we must know how to spot our opponents, which we want to look at this week. In verses 5 to 16, Jude provides a difficult but a powerful argument, carefully constructed to help us as his readers to contend for the faith. Jude uses Old Testament examples, maybe some of them have been familiar as we've read the text, but he also uses examples from two extra-canonical books to identify false teachers and to assure his readers that these wolves, dressed in sheep's clothing, will one day be judged by God. Jude's argument is complex and it's even harder for us today in the 21st century to understand because if we're honest, most of us, if not all of us, are very unfamiliar with many of the Old Testament stories Jude quotes so it's helpful, I think, to see the structure of his argument laid out. Feel free to take a picture, jot this down. Just a big overview before we get uh, further on in to what I want us to consider today. So in verses 5 to 7, Jude provides three Old Testament examples. The Exodus, the angels, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 8, he, he he, he transitions by changing the tense in the original language and also including, um, including this phrase, these people. So he's applying it to the false teachers. And then in first 9, Jude, Jude quotes from a familiar example taking from a book called The Assumption of Moses. Verse 10, again, these people, change of tense. He applies it to the false teachers in his midst. And then he jumps back to the Old Testament in verse 11 with three Old Testament characters, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Verses 12 to 13, there's a tense change. These people, these are. He's applying those examples again. And then as we've just heard, verses 14 to 15, he comes back to a familiar example, and he quotes this time from the book of Enoch. And in verse 16, to close off his argument, Jude applies it again. So that's a very big overview. Maybe if you're familiar with this, you're like, that's very, I've, I've oversimplified it. I don't think so. I think it's there, okay? So there's three Old Testament examples, three Old Testament characters, and in between, there's two familiar books, one from the Assumption of Moses and one from the first book of Enoch, and all the time, he's applying it to his false teachers, and his main purpose is to encourage, to assure his readers and us as Christians to fight, to contend, to stand, Confirm and, and defend the faith. And as you can see in verses five to 16, from this quick summary, Jude provides several descriptions of the false teachers who invaded the congregation he writes to. And although it's true that there are different types of false teachers in the New Testament, Jude's descriptions could be applied to all false teachers. And by grouping some of these descriptions together, there are many, read it at home, by grouping some of them together, I believe that we can come up with four main characteristics of false teachers. That's where we want to go today, four main characteristics of false teachers. But before we consider these four characteristics, let me make a short, short comment on Jude's use of these two books, the Assumption of Moses and First Enoch. These two books aren't in our Bibles, so you may wonder, well, why is Jude referring to them? Well, most scholars believe that Jude used the two books because his readers were familiar with them. That's what I said, a familiar example just as I would use a familiar song or series in order to illustrate a point in my sermon, so Jude, I believe, is using these books to illustrate his sermon points. It's a bit like the Apostle Paul, and whenever he speaks uh, to the philosophers in Athens, in Mars Hill, Acts 17, he quotes from a Greek poet and a Greek philosopher, because what they said was a was was a connector with his audience he was he was using a familiar example and likewise jude is connecting with his readers and using a familiar example some scholars even suggest that the false teachers use the material from the assumption of Moses and from 1 Enoch to support their teaching. So Jude says, okay, if you're not going to listen to the Old Testament, I'm going to quote from the books you love and you cherish, and even they are speaking about your judgment. So it's a familiar example to his readers and to the false teachers. Also, notice that Jude doesn't describe the two books as Scripture, nor does he use the phrase as it is written before referring to them. Across the Gospels, where in Mark at the moment, Jesus often says, as it is written, as you have read, referring back to the Old Testament, to Scripture. Jude doesn't say this. He just quotes them, like a sermon illustration, like I would quote Netflix or, or a song. He's using that because his audience are familiar with it to make his point. So there's no need for us as Christians to be concerned here. So with that said, let's try to summarize Jude's argument in verses 5 to 16 by noticing four characteristics of false teachers. Four characteristics which I trust will help us as individual Christians and as a new church plant to spot a false teacher and avoid them. Characteristic number one. False teachers reject authority. False teachers reject authority. And verse eight, Jude describes the people who have crept in as those who reject authority. Now, it's true that that Christians sin, Christians rebel, Christians refuse to listen to authority, but. Th- But there's a difference here. You see, in a Christian, over a long period, there will be signs of conviction and confession of their sin. False teachers, on the other hand, both in word and deed, continually and explicitly reject authority. Whose authority? Well, the authority of God. Jude tells us that false teachers are anti-Lord and they are anti-law. Notice that false teachers are anti-Lord. We were introduced to this last week. Jude, the writer, identified himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And we said, well, if he's the brother of Jesus, as we established last week, why does he introduce himself as the servant of Jesus? Because we made the point that Jude willingly and gladly submitted to Jesus' authority. False teachers, however, first 4, deny our only Master and Lord. And Jude mentions in verse 5 the people of Israel and in verse 6 the angels as past examples, examples from the Old Testament of those who also rejected God's authority. Jude, guided by the Holy Spirit, writes in verse 5, look at it with me, that Jesus saved the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. And then after their deliverance, God commanded the people to take possession of the land that he had given them. But... Because they feared those who were in the land, some of the people rebelled against Moses and Aaron, against God's authority, and they didn't enter into the land. And as a result, afterward, they were destroyed in the wilderness. The first generation was completely destroyed for disobedience, for at its core, rejecting God's authority. In verse 6, Jude refers to rebellious angels who didn't stay in their place. Most likely this refers to the opening verses of Genesis chapter 6. Now, I said this, this, this is a heavy passage and there's a lot of discussion about what happened in that event. But sadly, and maybe thankfully, we don't have much time to consider it today. So let me encourage you instead, sorry Josh, sorry Sam, sorry Alex, let me encourage you to ask us at River Group. What different things are there? Let's let's, let's think about these things. But notice Jude's main emphasis in verse 6. Read it with me. The angels did not stay or keep within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. You see, God had given these messengers, these angelic beings, a home, a realm, but they went against their master's established order. They refused to keep their position, and as a result, God has kept them in eternal change until the great day of judgment. So the people in the Exodus, verse 5, they rejected authority, the authority of Moses and Aaron. Verse 6, these angels, well, they too rejected authority, God's established order. And in verse 9, Jude provides another example, this time from the assumption of Moses. And again, I'm sure you have many questions about the dispute between Michael and the devil. But again, notice the main point. As archangel, Michael has lots of authority. And yet, he doesn't say to the devil that he, as the archangel, will decide where Moses' body goes. Whether it goes to heaven or whether it goes with the devil. Michael doesn't take that on himself. Why? Because he acknowledged the authority of God as judge and said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. Michael didn't abuse his power. He didn't abuse his position. He didn't reject the authority. Rather, Michael's an example of people, of an angelic being, the archangel, who said, I know my position. I know my power. And ultimately, God is judge. So Satan, the Lord, rebuke you. So can you see the point of these three examples? The cities and the angels and Michael. Judas telling us that, 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 that false teachers disobey God's commandments and in doing so they reject his lordship. False teachers overstep God's set boundaries and they go against his established order. They abuse their positions of power to exploit others. So church, if you want to know how to spot a false teacher, look for those who are anti-Lord. Those who deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Notice also that these false teachers are anti-law. They reject the authority of God's moral law. Jude describes them in verse 10 as those who, who, who blaspheme all that they do not understand. It's a reference to the word of God. These teachers claimed that they didn't understand God's law. They probably didn't even want to try and understand it. So they insult the law of God and say it's unnecessary for our lives. This may even be the reason why these false teachers are described in verse 8 as blaspheming angels. Acts chapter 7 Verse 53, one reference to this tells us that the law was delivered on Mount Sinai by angels. So since God gave the law through his angels, these people insult the glorious ones. In fact, they refuse to listen to the law because ultimately they reject the authority of the lawgiver. Do you see the point? They are anti-law because they are anti-Lord. In verse 16, Jude describes them as grumblers and malcontents. The two words go together. They complain and they find fault. About what? About God's moral commandments and his demands. Like Israel in the wilderness, they complain about their appointed lot, about God's moral restraints. An English minister once said that that these, these people are are forever gazing over the fence at the non-Christians' greener grass, so they think, at people who are free not only to behave as they wish, but to do so with a clear conscience. And the ironic thing is, they, they, they outwardly say that. They say at the front, oh, God's law, what's it doing to me? Why am I stopped here? And yet secretly, as we'll come to see, they're not even listening to the law. They're complaining about it in public, and yet in private, they're abusing people. And we see this all around us, don't we? There are teachers on the internet who teach that God's law, his moral standards, no longer apply today, and the Christians. They justify their sinful actions by by getting rid of Scripture, or by twisting it, or even by claiming new revelation. Notice that this isn't an accidental slip of the tongue. Rather, it's an intentional and continual rejection of God's law. Even when people challenge these teachers, they continue to reject the relevance of God's law. But church, this isn't new. Jude says in verse 8 that the people had crept in on notice that they relied on their dreams. He calls them dreamers. It's an insult Instead of teaching the faith once for all delivered to the saints, verse 3, these teachers claimed that God revealed something to them in a dream, something that allowed them to justify their actions. Please listen carefully to this. This isn't a, a, a debate between whether there are dreams or not. That's for another day. But claims of supernatural revelation of dreams that contradict God's revealed word, They're not from God. Think about this logically. If a person claims that God gave them a dream which supports an action that is clearly against God's word, then either God is a liar or their dream wasn't from him. And I don't know about you, but the second option is definitely true. False teachers reject the abiding authority of God's law because ultimately they reject the Lord's authority. They are anti law because they are anti Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, avoid these people. Characteristic number two false teachers follow their own sinful desires. False teachers follow their own sinful desires. Have a look at what Jude says in verse 12. Jude describes them in verse 12 as reefs that that, that are undercover at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. The love feast was a a time when the church gathered to, to share food and the Lord's Supper and they had teaching. And these teachers didn't stay away from this public gathering, rather they attended it without fear. And today they, they they're the ones that that draw big crowds and, and are on major TV channels. Although false teachers are present in public, they, they often go unnoticed. They're reefs underwater. In other words, sharp rocks that, that 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 a boat can't see, and whenever you get too close, it's already too late. Your faith is shipwrecked. So we ask, how then can we recognise false teachers? before it's too late. Well, Jesus told us, didn't he? Matthew chapter 7, that we will recognize them by their fruits. So we should examine their lies. Because false teachers are always those who follow their own sinful desires. And you will see this by paying attention to their actions. Look at what Jude says in verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. I think in Jude's argument there are three specific sinful desires in few. Three sinful desires which have characterized false teachers throughout history and continue to characterize them today. Number one, they follow their sexual desires. They are sexually immoral. These people defile the flesh with sexual lusts. Verse 8. Like brute beast, false teachers follow what they feel, First 10. Even if their feelings are, are, are contrary to God's law, they still give in to them. So as we thought about, they, they reject God's authority. So if, if these teachers uh, seek to fulfill their sinful lust for, for women and for men and even children, they do it. It doesn't happen overnight. Rather, they earn people's trust to get into their homes. They quote the right things, and they say the right things, and they listen. And then they get into your homes, and they are there for one purpose only, to exploit you. Because they're controlled, they're followed, they're they're pursuing the gratification of their flesh. They're just like the wicked men in Sodom and Gomorrah who tried their their hardest to to sexually exploit Lot's angelic visitors who who they thought were men. To describe these cities in verse 7, they indulged in, in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Literally, they went after strange flesh. It was strange because it was against God's created order. And yet they, just like false teachers, only cared about satisfying their sexual lust. False teachers are categorized by sexual immorality. Notice secondly that they are greedy. Like Balaam who was motivated by greed and personal gain. False teachers are are motivated by power and popularity, money and mastery. They don't care if they cause other people to sin. All they care about is getting more and more. Jude describes them in verse 16 as loud mouth boosters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. In other words, they make public and powerful and persuasive speeches for the purpose of personal gain. In the Old Testament, uh, partiality, favoritism is often connected with bribery. So false teachers target wealthy and vulnerable people. They flatter them with with compliments. And to use the Apostle Paul's language, they tickle their itching ears to get their money and to get their likes and to get their respect. Again, notice that their teaching is subtle. They quote from scripture, but they take a verse out of its context to twist it. They convince people that all God wants is for us to be healthy and wealthy and in order to get health and wealth, we must give so that the windows of heaven are opened to us. Church, watch out for these people. They are greedy and they're following their own sinful desires. Thirdly, notice that they're selfish. They're selfish. Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. Just read the gospel accounts and you'll see that everything Jesus done was for people and for others. And likewise, his under-shepherds, his pastors and teachers, they are to shepherd the flock of God selflessly and lovingly. False teachers, on the other hand, well, they are selfish shepherds. Jude describes them in verse 12 as shepherds feeding themselves. Although they're in pastoral positions with big crowds, the people under their teaching are starved and malnourished because they only care for themselves. The, The weak are not strengthened, the injured are not looked after, the lost are not sought, and the grieving are not comforted. All they are concerned about is feeding themselves and teaching themselves and getting money and following their lusts because they are selfish shepherds even if we can call them shepherds. So brothers and sisters, look out for these teachers. Beware of teachers who are selfish and greedy and sexually immoral. And I'm not saying just a blip. Okay, I, I can be selfish. Okay, it's not, It doesn't mean I'm a false teacher. We're not going out here today and looking at everyone who's selfish and, and we're saying, false teacher, false teacher. No, it's a continual thing a continual pattern a continual rejection even if you go to them and you say to them like what's going on here with your action and they say no god told me in a dream it's okay no this is what the word says okay so we're looking for people who are who are continually doing these things stay away from those who continually follow their own sinful desires because not only do false teachers reject authority but they always follow their own sinful desires Characteristic number three, false teachers lead others astray. False teachers lead others astray. Have you ever heard the saying, I think it's maybe in, in the business world, you become like those who you spend time with or something like that. There, there's another quote, but I do not want to use it, it as a bit confusing. But the, the truth is there. We are influenced by other people. We become like those who we spend time with. Mary, for example, my wife, she's, she's picking up all my phrases and my accents from Northern Ireland and I'm always surprised whenever she's talking to someone and she's like me and it's just weird. But it's because we spend so much time together because we're married 24-7. We're influenced by other people. And that's why false teachers are so dangerous. And their words and their works influence people. Instead of pointing people to Jesus, false teachers lead others away from him, away from the truth and into sin. In verses 11 to 13, Judah provides two groups of illustrations to emphasize that false teachers lead others astray. Let's quickly look at these two groups of illustrations. Group number one is the three Old Testament characters. In verse 11, Jude highlights how false teachers follow in the footsteps of Cain, of Balaam, and of Korah. And there are many suggestions why Jude referred to these three characters, but notice again that they all led others astray. The story is recorded uh, of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Cain committed the first murder when he struck down his brother Abel in a field. And according to Jewish interpretation, Cain, through the murder of his brother, corrupted the race of mankind and became the instructor of men in wicked practices. In other words, he set a pattern of hatred, of envy, of murder, which led others and continues to lead others astray. It's not that these, these, uh, these false teachers are, are, are going about murdering people physically, But inwardly, they are following the footsteps of Cain. And by their practice, they are leading others astray. The next story is recorded in Numbers 22 to 24. Balaam was a wicked prophet who who said he would do God's will. But motivated by greed, he He disobeyed God and and, and, and later taught Israel to worship another God and commit sexual immorality with forbidden women. So what did he do? He led Israel astray. He taught Israel to sin. Korah too led others astray. His story is recorded in Numbers 16. Along with two others, Korah led 250 men against the authority of Moses. He's the classic Old Testament example of the anti-law heretic. So all three characters led people from the truth, took them away from the truth, and brought them into sin. And likewise, false teachers always lead others away from the truth of God's word and into sin. Let me say it again, though: It's not outright rejection. That's false religion. False teaching takes the Bible, twists it, takes a little away, adds a little to ultimately lead you from the truth. Group number two, four natural illustrations. Jude uses four illustrations from nature to emphasize that false teachers have, have, have the appearance of being helpful, but actually they're, they're, they're fruitless, they're directionless, and they lead others astray. First he calls them, in verse 12, waterless clouds. Clouds indicate it uh, much-needed rain for a dry and dusty land. And although these people look like they will provide much-needed nourishment for the souls of people, they provide nothing. They are waterless clouds. They deceive people and give them false hope and lead them astray. Secondly, they are described as fruitless trees in harvest time. The time when fruit is gathered. Although these teachers should provide fruit in their position, they offer nothing. Again, they they have the appearance of offering so much, and yet they are fruitless. Thirdly, in verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Just as the sea is uncontrollable and destructive, so these teachers can't be controlled and leave only destruction and filth wherever they go. Finally, they're described as wandering stars. Before lights and compasses and iPhones and and whatever's out there, people looked at the stars for direction. Especially in a dark night at sea, people were guided by stars. And if you follow the wrong star, you will go completely off course. These people then, like wandering stars, lead others away from the right course. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. Just because teachers have the appearance of being true, doesn't mean they are true. Don't let your guard down. Test every. Teaching, including my teaching. Okay? I'm not immune from this. Sam's not immune from this. All of us test every teaching because there are many, many false teachers in our world. Thank you. (laughs) But we also need to remember today that this, this isn't mere theory, it isn't theoretical knowledge. Jude was writing to a specific group of people whose ranks had been infiltrated. Wolves clothed in sheep's clothing were among them presently right now. It's very possible then that the original readers perhaps became discouraged reading this letter. Discouraged that they were so naive and and, and so easily tricked. Perhaps even they, they, they were frightened, they were scared because of the certain people among them. And yet Jude provides them throughout this letter with an encouraging reminder. A reminder that in the overall structure is weaved through continually. A reminder that serves as our fourth and final characteristic of false teachers. And it's this, false teachers will Be judged. I mentioned last week in our opening sermon, Jude is known as the most neglected book in the New Testament. One reason for this, I suggest, was because Judas wrongly viewed as negative with its several references to judgment. And yet throughout scripture, the day of judgment is very, very often used to encourage believers, to encourage us as Christians, that our persecutors will not escape punishment. And that's what I believe Jude is doing in this passage. He is assuring vulnerable and weak and harassed sheep that the wolves among them will one day be judged. And since the letter would have been read publicly, it also serves a double purpose. A purpose of warning the false teachers of their destiny if they continue in their ungodliness. In verse 7, Jude says that the destruction that, that, that came on, on, on Sodom and Gomorrah, well, that was only a foretaste, only a preview. It served it as, as an example of what would happen on the great day of the Lord to the ungodly. And then Jude quotes from this book, 1 Enoch, in verse 14 to describe this judgment. Have a look at the middle of verse 14 with me. Enoch said, prophesied, Jude quotes him saying, Behold, the Lord, that is Jesus, comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. False teachers not only teach others to sin, but they also deny the reality of coming judgment. Yet the Bible is absolutely clear. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Notice the word all in verse 14. No one is exempt. We thought about this a couple of weeks ago last month when we considered God's justice No one is exempt. Everyone, rich and poor, Christian and non-Christian, black and white, everyone will stand before Jesus and will need to give an account for their works and their ways in this life. And on that day, ultimately, the godly, those who are outside of Christ, they will be convicted and they will be condemned. That includes false teachers. And that's an assurance for Jude's readers. Because false teachers, as we've thought about, will be judged. But it also includes anyone who hasn't trusted Jesus as their Savior and Lord in this life. And if you're not a Christian today, please hear this warning as we draw to a close. The Bible, and God's Word, says, as we thought about in our catechism, that everyone has sinned against God. We have all spoken ungodly words and we've all committed ungodly actions. And as a result, we are rightly under the righteous judgment of Almighty God. And yet, there's good news today. There's good news in the gospel because the gospel declares that the judge is the saviour. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. So the ungodly, verses 14 to 16, will be judged. And yet there's a provision for the ungodly. There's a savior for the ungodly. And his name is Jesus. And it's only by trusting in the death of Jesus on the cross in your place and his resurrection from the grave three days later that your ungodliness will be forgiven. It's only those who are covered by the blood of Jesus who will be saved from God's wrath to come on the great day of judgment. If you're not a Christian today, let me urge you to make today the day of your salvation. Confess your sin to God and trust Jesus as your personal, as your personal saviour and Lord. And God promises in his word that false teachers will be judged. And he also promises that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. Therefore choose life today and you will live. Amen.